Well, good evening and a very, very warm welcome to each and every one of you to St. Paul's as we continue our Autumn Forum series, this year exploring how to change the world and tonight focusing on freedom. My name is Mark Oakley and it is my privilege to be chairing this series and of course to welcome and introduce our speakers to you, which I will do in just a moment. But for those of you who haven't been to one of our events before, let me quickly explain how it works. In a moment, Shami Chakrabarti and Peter Selby will speak about the personal and political meanings of freedom and how we might have more freedom in the world, in our lives, and perhaps hearts. And if you have a question as they are speaking, please, at any stage, write out the question on the back of your leaflet and hold it up, and it will be collected. We'll collect the questions as they come through the evening until about 7.30. Please try and make sure that your question is brief. Please make sure it's legible. And then, and of course usually the Church of England has the engine of a lawnmower and the brakes of a juggernaut, but tonight with the great appliance of science and technology at which we can only wonder... Uh, the questions will appear in front of me on the screen uh, here at the desk and I'll be able then to put your questions to the speakers as they come in. We'll end promptly at 8 o'clock and books from the speakers in the series will be for sale here under the dome and Bishop Peter will sign copies of his own book. There will also be an opportunity to learn more about the work done by Liberty for Human Freedom. And there's a table over there where you'll be able to pick up materials and learn more about Liberty. There will also be an opportunity to contribute to the work of Liberty as you leave. So now it gives me great pleasure to introduce our speakers. <coughs> Shami Chakrabarti is the director of Liberty which is the National Council for Civil Liberties, and you'll know her well from her extraordinarily articulate and determined role in keeping human rights at the forefront of national debate. A barrister by profession, she worked as a lawyer in the Home Office for governments of different views from 1996 to 2001 before moving to Liberty as its in-house counsel where she became very involved in its engagement with what is often called the War on Terror and with the defence and promotion of human rights in Parliament, in the courts and in wider society. She became its director in 2003 at the very tender age of 34. And last year, Shami acted as one of the six assessors on the Leveson Inquiry panel into the complex subject of press freedom. In her copious free time, she is the Chancellor of Oxford Brookes University, a visiting fellow of Nuffield College, a Master of the Bench of Middle Temple, a Governor of the London School of Economics, and a Governor of the British Film Institute. 
In a rare night off, she was also one of the eight Olympic flag carriers at the opening ceremony of the London Olympic Games last year. The Times has called Charmy the most effective public affairs lobbyist for the last 20 years. Critics have called her an anarchist in a barrister's wig. And The Sun once screamed she was the most dangerous woman in Britain. Well, that sounded very good to us here at St. Paul's, and it's a real delight to welcome such a resolute and non-negotiable friend of freedom here this evening. Welcome. Peter Selby is visiting professor in the Department of Theology at King's College London and is a former Bishop of Worcester and Bishop to Her Majesty's Prisons. His engagement with the subject of what freedom really means has run through both his working life and his profound theological engagement with the issues of our times. As a young man training for ordination, he served as a chaplain at San Quentin Prison in California, and I suspect that was a formative experience. He was bishop for prisons until 2007 and was then appointed president of the National Council for Independent Monitoring Boards, scrutinizing treatment and respect for those in custody. <clears throat> Himself the son of refugees, he's also been chair of the Asylum Committee of the Refugee Council. He writes and speaks widely about theology and economics, including personal and international debt. And he's the author of Grace and Mortgage, The Language of Faith and the Debt of the World. And he's currently one of the interim directors of our St. Paul's Institute, which seeks to promote financial integrity in the search for the common good. If Shami is an anarchist in a wig, Peter's a bit of an anarchist in a mitre. And knowing him as I do, I think he'd rather like it if the son called him the most dangerous bishop in Britain. Like Shami, the person I know, however, is passionate, transparently full of integrity, and happily for us tonight, full of wisdom too. Both Shami and Peter think as people of action and they act as people of thought. And I ask you to join me now in welcoming both our speakers. And now I invite Shami to speak to us. Thank you so much, Mark. It's an enormous um, honour to, to be here. Um, if I really am um, the most dangerous woman in Britain, I guess Britain's really not that, not that dangerous a place, is it? Um, as I said, a huge honour to be here, and it's been a day of um, enormous privilege for me because um, earlier this afternoon I saw my dear friend and inspiration really Doreen Lawrence um, be received into the House of Lords which was really a very very poignant moment I think in the struggle for rights and freedoms in, in, in the United Kingdom so we've got the most dangerous woman in Britain speaking in St Paul's Cathedral we've got Doreen Lawrence who had to 
somehow convert the most excruciating personal gr grief into um, an amazing campaign, not just for her, her own son and justice for her own son, but for all of our sons and daughters. And it makes me reflect that, important though it is that, um, that, that people like me urge people like you and everyone else not to take our, our freedoms for, for granted, we, we must remember that we've come uh, a very long way as well and we mustn't be complacent about our rights and freedoms we must we must better treasure them next year liberty will be 80 years old we were um, formed in 1934 uh, as a result of the following story in short the hunger marchers came from the north of the country to eventually assemble in Hyde Park now, of course, 1934 is completely different from 2013. You can, you can imagine this is a completely irrelevant story that I'm telling you. There was no DNA, no mobile phones, no reality TV shows. Um, and yet, in 1934, certain newspapers would regularly run headlines about Britain being swamped by refugees from Eastern Europe. Now, that would never happen today. And um, in 1934, the far right was on the ascendancy in parts of this city and all over Europe. And, of course, 1934 was a time of, of great economic uncertainty and hardship for people, hence the hunger marches. And they came to Hyde Park to assemble at the end of their long march. And something extraordinary happened that, again, would never happen today. They were duffed up by the Metropolitan Police. That is a jurisprudential term. They were duffed up by the Metropolitan Police. And, and what's more, some police officers, would you believe, went undercover in the protest movement. Extraordinary, isn't it? Never happens now. Went undercover in the protest movement to misbehave in plain clothes to justify or purportedly justify a more brutal response. And so a group of people, much smaller than the, than the group that's honoured us with, with coming this evening, much smaller group of people um, were shocked at this and they assembled in the crypt of St Martin in the fields in Trafalgar Square. And um, today, of course, they would have blogged or tweeted or something clever like that, but they couldn't do that because it was 1934. So they wrote a, a letter to the Manchester Guardian newspaper and the audacity of this letter, um, very verbose letter actually, considering you had people like H.G. Wells and E.M. Forster and Vera Britt. I guess even great writers shouldn't draft by committee, but, but um, the audacity of this letter, they, you know, the upshot was we have formed the National Council for Civil Liberties to keep watch over liberty in Britain. Extraordinary thing that they did. And, uh, and we try to keep their legacy alive today. They were the original members. I hope some of you will think about being future members. And it's very easy to think about freedom in that sense. We had freedom and we had oppression. We wanted people who just wanted to march and wanted to demonstrate freedom to protest, essential in a democracy, of course, and they were oppressed by the policing response on that day. But of course, after World War II, 
And we have this unique moment in, in human history, I think, that's yet to be repeated. Um, we have people slightly from the right of politics, slightly from the left of politics, members of all the great world religions and people of no faith at all saying, we need more than freedom from, that we, we need positive obligations on the parts of the on the part of the powerful and of, of governments to protect not just freedom in that sort of negative sense, but to protect human dignity in the, in, in the, in the fully rounded sense. Freedom to, not just freedom from. And, and those values that we call modern human rights values can be enumerated into article this and article that of all sorts of clever conventions, but I would sum them up with three words. Three values, really. Dignity, equality, and fairness. Dignity in the sense of every single human life being precious. Every single human life. That's a newborn baby and a newly arrived asylum seeker. Not because they're a good or bad person, not because they're rich or poor, not because they've paid any taxes yet or had the opportunity to work, but just because they are alive. It's a concept that people of faith, interestingly, often find very easy to grasp. Um, but it's the idea that we're all precious. Equal treatment, as in walking around in someone else's shoes and applying freedoms to others as you'd like to enjoy them yourself. And fairness in the sense of giving people a fair hearing before you, before you take their freedom from them or make other compromises to their, to their life experience. Those are, the, those are the three values. Dignity, equality and fairness. And which do you think is the greatest of these? You can't shout out because of the acoustics. I, I, I'm teasing you. Um, I'm going to say equality. Not formal equality, as in everyone will have exactly the same amount of whatever item it is, but equal treatment, I think, is the most important because if we applied, if we applied our values with an even hand um, and made, we, we make compromises with, with human rights all the time. Human rights are balanced up against each other. Sometimes it's privacy and free speech. Sometimes it's liberty being trimmed in the name of security. We understand all of that. But it's so easy, isn't it, to trade away other people's rights and freedoms and keep our own. We'll have fingerprinting and ID cards and constant surveillance for them, the school kids or the asylum seekers, but we will apply to them policies, practices, um, limits on liberty that we won't, we won't take for ourselves. So equal treatment is this wonderful discipline that makes us walk around in other people's shoes. It's the, it's the place where the ballot box and the courtroom actually come together because it prevents majorities in democracies from, from trading away the rights of literally disenfranchised people, like children, like refugees, and of course, like prisoners. Dignity, equality, and fairness, and the greatest of these is equality, and we, we enumerate those values into, into freedom from torture, literal freedom, i.e. the right not to be arbitrarily detained, fair trial rights, a little bit of personal privacy. That's always in the news these days, isn't it? Compromised by security, by technology, cool technology, people giving up their own privacy because, because there's an app for it. And, it. and a pizza comes when you just press a button on you. It's great, isn't it? But, but the pizza keeps on coming. 
and people know that you like anchovies. Doesn't that creep you out? Privacy is... We are social creatures. This is an important point. We cannot have completely unfettered freedom, not just because that would be you know, freedom from the wolf, for the wolf and not for the lamb, but because we are, we are social creatures and we want to rub along together. We want to give up some of our autonomy and some of our limitless freedom in order to share in this wonderful thing called life with other people. But equally, if we all live in the panopticon with no personal privacy, where is dignity? Where is intimacy? Where is trust between human beings? Because that's what human rights are about, the celebration of what it is to be a human being and, 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 and the facilitation of a good, of a good human experience. And how can you have other rights and freedoms like fair trial rights without confidential counsel, like freedom of conscience and religion without some, some privacy to, to, to go with that, to reflect and to, be, and to be with other people and explore your faith? How can, you, how can you have free and fair elections without a secret ballot? You know, privacy is a very easy right to compromise, but think of life without it. Freedom of thought, conscience and religion, of course, the right to have the faith of your choice, the right to have no faith at all, and as I think I said to the canon earlier, most importantly, perhaps, the right to be a heretic in any faith community so that that faith can, can live and thrive and progress and reflect and, and so on. Freedom of speech, of course. Freedom to, to speak and to protest and so on. And as I said, equal treatment under the law which is incredibly important because so many of these rights and freedoms have to be balanced and compromised, so let's not do it without an even hand. These are the precious rights and freedoms that are indivisible, that, that, that go together, that can't be, can't be treated as a pick and mix, where you take one and not the other. So I say to, to, to people who feel very, very um, brave and angry and courageous in their, in their secularism, careful what you wish for, because if you want to, to, um, to be intolerant towards people who wear crosses or headscarves or beards or other fancy dress, they may not feel too tolerant about your satire and your humour and your political speech and the, the way that you express your freedom either. We have, to, um, we have to treat others as we'd like to be treated wherever it is we're coming from and respect sometimes things that we don't agree with or understand. This framework of rights and freedoms is now under attack. Some people want to scrap the Human Rights Act and pull out of the Convention on Human Rights that is Churchill's post-war legacy. It's part of the post-war settlement that came out of the Holocaust and the Blitz and was hard won and paid for in blood. Some people in our polity and in our media want to scrap all that. So I'll end with the words of a great lawyer and great judge some people thought the greatest Englishman of recent years, the late Tom Bingham, Lord Bingham, who said, having listed no torture, free speech, fair trials, and so on, he said, which of these rights, I ask, would we wish to discard? Are any of them trivial, superfluous, unnecessary? 
Are any of them un-British? There may be those who would like to live in a country where these rights are not protected. But I am not of their number, nor am I. Thanks for listening. Thank you, Shami. Um, it's, it's a very powerful experience uh, for me to uh, speak here. Um, it's, uh, it's over 40 years since I sat probably about there, uh, nervously waiting to be ordained. So this building has uh, lots of, of meaning for me in, in a personal sense. Um, it's also a great honor to share a platform with, with uh, Shami whose uh, intellectual courage in the face of uh, all attempts to subvert our freedoms is such an inspiration. We have celebrated this year the 50th anniversary of Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech. And uh, because it's known as the I Have a Dream speech, that passage in the speech was uh, repeated and repeated in the recordings much more often than the conclusion of the speech, at which point Martin Luther King Jr. gave vent to an exuberant quotation of the spiritual, free at last, free at last, praise God almighty, I'm free at last. And uh, in, the, in those three words repeated, captured the entire inheritance of his people. Uh, free at last meant an end to slavery. Free at last meant an end to the perilous journey north to the Canadian border and freedom if you were a, an escaping slave. Free at last meant uh, actually for some uh, dying at the end of a rotten life on the plantations as a slave. And all of that he drew upon in those words and his audience knew what he meant. But he wasn't only drawing in the inheritance of African-Americans who had endured slavery. He also was drawing, as a Christian pastor, on the inheritance of the Hebrew family of religions for whom release from slavery is the image, the image, of what it is to be fully human. Sometimes the slavery is spiritualized. Uh, sometimes it is spoken of in a sense which is not literal. But the literal meaning of it, with its memories of Egypt and bricks without straw, is never ever lost. And their preeminent duty was not to return to slavery. 
And in their scriptures, Christians and Jews and Muslims have this record of a command that the worst thing you could do was return to slavery. And the slavery which they predominantly had in mind was debt slavery. It was people being sold with their lands, their dear ones, their children sold as the only way they could have any food. Sold. And that was the greatest fear that they could have, was that they would be enslaved again, or that they would behave in a way that belonged to that slave life. Very attractive sometimes. Were not the flesh pots, the flesh pots <coughs> in Egypt better than this wilderness wandering <coughs> just because it happened to be a, f- a freedom wander? So debt slavery is a biblical image and it's one that never ever left. Thank you very much. Thank you. It's the one that never left the people, the Hebrew people and their descendants. <coughs> and as a result, the worst thing that they could also imagine was that they would lose their freedom literally by being imprisoned for debt. <coughs> and that continued. It's not a couple of miles from here, is it, to the clink, the Bishop of Winchester's debtor's prison. And prison is still, for most people, the archetypal image of what it is not to be free. And if you think our prisons are cruel places, do remember that when... The scriptures spoke of prisons, they meant dungeons. If you want a contemporary account of that, read Brian Keenan's An Evil Cradling and you will get a sense of prison as a place where you threw people to be rid of them. And it became, for our ancestors, the image of life from death to be released from prison. And the pit is the name for the ultimate loss of your freedom in debt. And what I really want to say is that despite all the freedoms which have been fought for for people by people such as Shami and her movement, for all those freedoms, the developments of late capitalism are such that debt is the great threat to our freedom and is the great image of our continued enslavement. And if dungeons were an image of the loss of freedom, then there was another one, and it ought to be near the top of our minds today, which is people drowning at sea off Lampedusa. People who wanted to be free from all sorts of different things. And that's not wrong, 
That's the deepest human aspiration. Shami mentioned that people of faith often find it easier, perhaps, to speak of human dignity because they speak of human beings as all precious. I hadn't planned to say this tonight, but if ever I'm asked to talk about my religious conversion, I mentioned this story of my preparation for confirmation at the age of 14 when the clergyman who prepared me quoted the catechism in the prayer book with its expression that in baptism you become the child of God. And he said, you notice it's the definite article, not the indefinite article. And that's because you are loved as though you were the only one. Everybody is loved as though they were the only one. And that's what lies behind our sense that for freedom we are made and for freedom we are made to be free. Now I understand, of course, that there are constraints, there have to be constraints upon freedom which is not the right to do exactly what you like. And I also know that partly through the great reformers, prisons are not just dungeons anymore. And good and worthy things are done there. But I always remember Stephen Pryor, a very good former prison governor, coming to launch a book that the churches had produced, offering people various opportunities to be involved in the criminal justice system. And he said, what excellent opportunities these were. And he really hoped we would take them up. He just had one question. And his question was, do we need prisons in order to do these things for people? Do we need as much constraint on our freedom as we have? Will our great-grandchildren be as puzzled about our tolerance of the use of the loss of freedom as a punishment, as we are puzzled by our great-grandparents' tolerance of slavery. Those seem to me to be the big questions as debt and the money process continues to enslave us all. And I end with just one image that people have often not, I think, thought of. There is a debate about whether prisons should be run for profit by private companies. And there are various arguments that get used. But the one that sticks in my throat is the vision of a future in which I stand in the dock and there are 12 people on the jury, all of whom know that their pensions are tied up with companies who will gain from my imprisonment. The personal freedoms of our society are tied up with what is involved in that frightening union of money and custody. And from that, may we make sure we are delivered.
Thank you. Well, thank you, Shami, and thank you, Peter, very much. Now it's over to you. Uh, I can see one person giving you an example of what to do. Write down your questions on your uh, uh, leaflets, hold them up, and they'll be collected, and uh, we will put your questions now to both our speakers. While that's beginning to happen, can I just kick off? We've just heard there, uh, Shami, Peter, talking about one of the greatest risks to freedom. And I wondered what you believe at the moment are the greatest threats to our freedoms. Well, I think that in a, in a great old broken, unbroken old democracy like this one, complacency can be an enormous, enormous threat to freedom. Um, it would be ridiculous for me to compare myself to a human rights campaigner in parts of the world where they are disappeared and they are censored and they are beaten up. And you know, I'm, look at me. I'm sitting in St Paul's Cathedral with the pearls, off to a smart dinner. After the, you know, I can hardly um, um, compare myself with people in Burma and Zimbabwe and so on. And yet, and yet, complacency might lead to, you know a future government pulling the United Kingdom out of the Council of Europe, tearing up the Convention on Human Rights, those, those rights and freedoms that I listed before, scrapping the Human Rights Act, I think that's extraordinary. And I, not only would that be a threat to um, the, the legal and cultural and political protection of, um, of, of human rights in the, in the United Kingdom, what kind of a signal would that send to to more embryonic democracies and non-democracies um, elsewhere. So I think this shocking complacency, often, often wrapped up with xenophobia. You know, the problem with the European Convention is that it's European. <laughs> you know, like a Bratwurst or Silvio Berlusconi or, you know, something, you know, un-British. Um, so xenophobia is always a bit of a problem. Um, prison, of course, is a perennial problem because one of the things that one of the problems people have with the Convention on Human Rights is that the Strasbourg Court said that the blanket ban on prisoners voting in this country, something that hadn't been properly thought about by our politicians since the Victorian era, the blanket unthinking ban on any prisoner voting, because the court in Strasbourg said that's disproportionate for its blanket nature, we've got politicians who have our dear Prime Minister saying that unelected judges made him feel physically sick. With the greatest res of respect to senior politicians, the next time they have a stomach virus, they should, they should rush to the bathroom and not the chamber. I promised you uh, some uh, provocative thinking here, and I, I, your questions are starting to come through, and I, I, there are some very interesting questions here. First of all, I want to voice one that's been coming through from a couple of you, um, same theme. Somebody's written, I feel so powerless. I watch the news and other people's freedoms in Syria and in so many places. I would want to at the moment uh, talk about lesbian and gay people in Russia, for instance, uh, and I'm, I'm watching them disappear. What can I do, Peter? 
May I pick up from, in responding to that, pick up from what Shami said, I have never met a persecuted person who wanted me to forego my freedoms. The worst thing that happens is that this is made competitive, that one person's freedoms are made more important than another person's. So what I would say is, yes, of course, it's absolutely terrible to watch uh, some of the things that are going on. And, you know, I mentioned Lampedusa. I just, I just think to live in a continent that is prepared to enable that sort of thing to keep happening is, is terrible. And some of the things that are said could easily lead to that. But defending our freedoms and being clear about our freedoms is a very important contribution to the freedom of other people, even if you can't see it. Because if we're prepared to sell our freedoms for a mess of pottage of whatever kind, if we're prepared to forego our freedoms, the pretty good chance that we shall forego the freedoms of others. And I, as you speak, I'm reminded of Aung San Suu Kyi speaking under house arrest in Burma uh, when she said to the outside world in 1997, please use your freedom to promote ours. It's an important um, P.S. to what you've just been saying, Peter. Shami, do you...? The, the person who felt powerless, um, I'd like you to join liberty. <laughs> and, um, and, and, and the way that you do that is you type liberty into your favorite search engine. Um, ideally, you type liberty human rights, because otherwise you may be distracted by a certain smart Piccadilly department store. And I don't want you to... It's all the money stuff that you heard the bishop speak about. I don't want you to be distracted by those materialistic temptations. I want you to type liberty human rights into your favourite search engine. And don't worry about whether that search engine will then tell GCHQ, MI5, MI6, because the innocent have nothing to fear, right? And I... I, I, I right? Nothing to hide, nothing to fear. Have you heard that before? Hmm? We all have something to, to protect, don't we? Um, our conscience, our... Anyway, so I'd like you to do that, and that would be something practical that that, that, that you could do, and you could you could join our Liberty family, and you'd be you'd be very welcome and in good company. But do you think? I mean, do you think you politicians in this country are being complacent about freedoms? Because uh, yes, I do. You I, think, do. I think sometimes they're complacent, and sometimes they're positively mischievous because because it's just. It's just so easy. Sometimes it's a distraction from, from poverty and inequality and the economy, stupid. Um, and and it, 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 look, it's, it's so easy for the powerful to divide the vulnerable. Let's just, let's just hate the asylum seekers and the prisoners and the, and the people next door and, and, and the people across the water. And, um, sometimes it's quite cynical, actually. Sometimes it's just constitutional illiteracy. I mean, this idea that judges are illegitimate in a democracy because they're unelected. Well, of course they're unelected. They're independent. And you need to, ha and that's the rule of law, you know, and, and th that should bind, you know, ministers and prime ministers just as it, you know, here, how about this one? Okay, so you've got politicians who've been wagging their authoritarian forefingers at us for like decades. 
Um, forget what they were doing with the left hand in the till with expenses, and let's not get into all of that. But they're wagging their fingers, telling us to obey the law and not be criminals, because otherwise we'll go to prison. And then they are showing disrespect for the highest courts in the land. Why should a kid on a council estate anywhere in this country respect an ASBO from a local magistrate if home secretaries and prime ministers won't respect the Supreme Court or the Court of Human Rights in Strasbourg? I don't know whether that's complacent, cynical, illiterate. It's just, it's just plain wrong, isn't it? Yes. I, I mean, um, you mentioned the, the voting, prisoners' voting issue. Um, one of the scandals about it, and there are many, um, is that the Secretary of State for Justice of all people is not obeying the law, uh, is not subjecting himself to the rule of law. That's both the last government and this. Um, but what I wanted to say really is democracy since ancient Greece has been the means by which ordinary people could resist the power of people with money and with armies and all those things. But what the people with power know how to do is to subvert the desires of ordinary people so as to persuade them that their interests lie actually with the interests of the strong. And so poor people and not so poor people are induced to vote against themselves and to act against themselves and to dislike and despise people for whom democracy should be a protection. Um, it seems to me that free speech is pretty fundamental yes. because democracy requires debate yes. and law um, requires the right to be heard in court, not to be intimidated. Education requires questioning, access to information. So Free speech is fundamental. Questions come in. Students at the LSE recently claimed it was their right to freedom of expression to wear T-shirts that mocked the Prophet Muhammad. Are they right? Um, Perhaps you'd like to go. They are right that it's their right. Um, however, a right is not a duty. So um, I believe that it ought to be my right to, um, to, to stand up now and start swearing and being rude to everybody and I ought not to be arrested, criminalised and so on. Um, I should have a right to insult everybody and be just thoroughly objectionable but, but it's not my duty and it would be rather silly, wouldn't it? I mean, it wouldn't be great, it wouldn't be great for my cause, it wouldn't be great advocacy, you might not join Liberty um, whereas you're all going to, of course. Um, and you might not, I might not be invited back again. Um, and it was just a, it's just a bit, a bit, a bit silly. So um, now you could, you could say that I don't stand up and swear and be ridiculous because it's an act of self-censorship. Or you could just say that it's kindness or politeness or, or, or sane counsel. Um, so that's what I would say to the students at my alma mater, the LSE, that yes, you have a right, but a right is not a duty. And... Um, and just think about the wisdom of that of that of that choice that you that you that you might make. Um, <clears throat> I agree with that. With this um, additional point, I think, um, if you feel very um, opposed to the views 
of people whom you also regard as a minority who are being um, badly treated, then that might be a good reason for abstaining from the exercise of your right to mock them or to oppose them in a very forthright way. Um, you know, uh, there was a whole discussion in Germany recently about whether um, the practice of circumcision among Jewish people uh, was actually a, an attack on the human rights of infants. Um, and Chancellor Merkel said, Germany is the last place on earth where we are going to debate that question. And I think that was right. Uh, I don't think that offends the other principle, which is that there should be freedom of speech. But I think it's perfectly proper to say there are some things which, if I say them, will compound the indignity to which particular groups of people are subject. More questions, and they're coming in. Please uh, keep, keep holding up your questions. Uh, they're coming in, though. What do you think about Dacre, Rusbridger, and Freedom? Uh, Peter, you go first on this. Um, uh, well, um, I am very, very suspicious of those who claim <coughs> that they are representing the views of ordinary, hard-working British people who are not represented by what are called the establishment, which is what Paul Dacre said in his article in The Guardian. Um, I, uh, I think that um, he's wrong and I think that he is a very good example of the way in which people of power and money have used that power and money to subvert the desires of people so that they vote against and think against themselves. That's, I think, briefly what I think. Okay. I think we might have I think we should try to get a little bit of disagreement because this has been such a loving hasn't <laughs> it so, so, and, and it, people go to sleep or whatever so I'll, I'll, hug, I'll be a little controversial and, 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 and so I'm not going to go in for the, for the Daily Mail bashing on, on this occasion we don't vote for these people we spend a few you know I, I spend whatever a few pence or it's a bit more these days on, on the newspapers um and, but my vote is far more precious to me than, than the money that I'd spend on a newspaper of, of, of any kind. And I, it, it, in my work, I read lots of different newspapers too. Um, I always say to my colleagues that if you sit in your, um, sitting in your kitchen reading The Guardian or perhaps The Independent and drinking your favourite free trade organic brew and listening to the Today programme and is, um, is all very good, but it's, um, it's not campaigning. So do that on your own time. <laughs> and um, uh, you know that's recreation. That's not that's not campaigning. So so it's about. So I do want to be exposed to different points of view. Mm -hmm. And and um, just because a point of view is expressed in a newspaper doesn't you know doesn't mean it's rep it represents its readers. And readers aren't stupid, and they can buy papers and not agree with them. Um, sometimes these papers remind me of a stopped clock you know it tells the right time twice a day you just have to have your own watch in working order so you know the daily mail cam i talked about dorian lawrence before the, the daily mail campaigned um very bravely and very rightly 
for, 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 for justice for, for the Lawrence family. The Daily Mail was right about extraordinary rendition and torture. The Daily Mail was right about Guantanamo. The, and, and what do I mean? I mean, I agree with that paper on those issues, and I, I disagree with it on, on other issues. And I could probably find some things I disagree with in, in The Guardian, which at times has been very, very loyal to a Labour government. So what we need is so we need the, the, the you know the rich diversity of uh, of news of news media. But I do agree that that some of these um, press barons could um, could treasure their own freedom a bit more carefully and and be more be more responsible. And they should have got together and sorted out a better self-regulatory system. Um, because they did, the phone hacking thing was a scandal and it did upset. But we, we've had this grand opera in this country in recent years, haven't we? Crises of trust. It started with the executive, perhaps, in Iraq, because we felt we were lied to. And the parliamentarians let us down with MPs' expenses. Then you couldn't even trust the bank managers, could you? Those nice bank managers were, were playing roulette in the back rooms. We didn't trust the bank managers anymore. And then the journalists, who were supposed to be exposing... Um, bad behaviour in other great houses of power, they let us down as well. And I think that um, whether it's Rusbridger or Dacre, or what, you know, as a group, as an industry, they've been a little too churlish and a little too slow to respond positively to the challenge of, of, of rebuilding trust. So, obviously, the other big areas, I mean, if we were listening to the Today programme this morning, for instance, you would have turned on the radio and heard that, was it four, or some people have been arrested uh, because it seems that they were planning some sort of firearm attack in this city. Question comes through. How do we protect our freedoms from extremists and terrorists, etc.? What limits, if any, are acceptable? So who wants to go with that first? Peter, perhaps. Um, I think my answer is reluctantly, we do. That is to say, there are things you have to do um, when there is clear uh, evidence of danger and evil intent. Um, I, I'm not actually uh, an anarchist, uh, notwithstanding your introduction. Um, I do think that there are are, there are rights which a state has to exercise, but, but reluctantly and with very, very severe questioning always. And the questioning, I mean, questioning when it's me, I can ask myself the questions inside myself. But in society, what you need is checks and balances. You need people to have to say, yes, this is a situation so bad, and those people need to be accountable. So the issue becomes, what are the precautions you're going to take to prevent the threat or implied threat or perceived threat of terror uh, from becoming a license to terrorize the whole population? And I, uh, I, I spent a, f a little time uh, listening to debates in, in the House of Lords and joining in. And I remember very well um, 
the, the, and I was mentioning to, to Shami before we started, I remember very well um, that kind of moral blackmail which says if you don't support locking people up for 70 days and tomorrow Birmingham New Street Station is blown up, it will be your fault. Uh, no, it won't be my fault. Um, it will be a terrible price that I would rather had never had to be paid but the other price, which is that I should live in a society in which I lose my freedoms, seems to me to concede all that the terrorists want anyway. So I, I guess I'm a both and uncertain person in this matter. So we're, so we're agreeing again, aren't we? <laughs> oh, dear. Um, um, that's all right. No. Um, I, I, of, course, of course I agree with all of that. Look, let me put it like this. The, the drafters of the international human rights framework were not 1960s hippies. You know, they had lived through World War II. They, they were not pacifists. They, you know, they had, they had seen some terrible, terrible horrors of the, of the last century. And so this framework of rights and freedoms is, is robust enough. It's, it's robust enough and flexible enough to... to you know, to protect us. Not, we can't be absolutely protected. There's no such thing as a risk-free society. That's a politician's lie or a politician's illusion. But there are things that we can do. We can't torture people, never, never, never. We can, um, we can um, restrict people's liberty, but we do it within a legal framework and that, is, that is true to our values. You know, we arrest on suspicion, we charge with evidence, we convict on proof. And, and when that happens to somebody, um, just, justice is done and seen to be done, and people from that person's family and community find it very hard to feel um, injustice. It, it, terrorism is, is ideologically motivated crime. Terrorists are heinous criminals perhaps but, but common criminals nonetheless let's not turn them into soldiers that's what terrorists want to be if you remember in, in, in the troubles in Northern Ireland everybody wanted to wear a uniform and everyone wanted to be treated as a prisoner of war and a soldier and actually the way to do this is to treat crime as crime and if it is ideologically motivated crime, that means the response to it has to be slightly ideological too. And, and that means we have to be true to our values, and our values are free speech, fair trials, etc. So yes, we can have surveillance. We can have even intrusive surveillance, but let's have it properly regulated by law, and let's target people when there is reasonable suspicion rather than turning us all into suspects. And, and, and so it goes on with other rights and freedoms too. And, and, and then we are the best advert for the, for the open society, the strong, healthy, vibrant open society. When we are hypocritical with our values, when great democracies like the US and the UK are involved in, in kidnap and torture, and by the way they use euphemisms to cover it up like extraordinary rendition, that is not singing sweetly that's kidnap and torture. Waterboarding is not a seaside sport. It's drowning. You know? These wonderful euphemisms that, that hide our shame when we're not true to our values, that, that's a mistake. It's by sticking to our values that we will, we will be safer, never completely safe, because that's not, that's not a reality. But it, it is how we prevail, I think. I think a lot of the people in the audience here will have some interest in, in religion and, and uh, well, some of you will have interest in religion, I would imagine. And a few questions have come in. I'm going to read two of them because um, 
Well, you'll see why. They slightly come from different places. First question. Pope Benedict said that the freedoms of our pluralist and democratic society are underpinned by Christian foundations and that they will be weakened if religion were to be marginalized or silenced. Do you agree? Sitting perhaps next to the person who's written, considering the oppressive nature of theocracies, including Iran, the Taliban, etc., wouldn't you agree that religion is possibly the greatest hindrance <laughs> on human freedom, freedom of sexuality and individual thought? Well, I'm going to look at Peter here, first of all. <clears throat> uh, well, there's some very bad religion around. Um, I mean, very bad. Uh, there's religion that, uh, that goes sour and becomes a front for various kinds of bitterness. Um, and when it does that, um, it usually, um, under the guise of defending religious truth, uh, acts out its bitterness against uh, people that it dislikes for one reason or another. Um, and that has to be resolved within the religions themselves, primarily. Um, I don't mean that we shouldn't be subject to the rule of law in how we resolve these things, but in the end, I think it is the struggle within Islam and the struggle within Christianity and the struggle within Judaism has to be resolved within those religious communities uh, between one version of their claims and another. And uh, so I don't think that religion is any more an obstacle to, or is any more susceptible to being used as an obstacle to human freedom than is any other form of human activity like politics or trade union membership. I mean, human beings are capable of twisting good ideas for evil ends, and, and we know that. And um, th those who, who espouse religion, those who profess a faith, um, take on themselves a responsibility to keep that profession uh, um, constantly under review and constantly under self-criticism. That's what I think I'd say. Well, I'm going to before I come to Sham, I'm going to push you with another question that's come through then, because if the Church of England is in favour of freedom, why does it continue to keep down women and gay people? And several versions, I'm told, of this question are coming in. So is our Church of England bad religion? Uh, in, when it does that, yes. Uh, of course. Um, uh, sometimes the badness... Um, uh, starts out as um, as error, as a perceived sense of loyalty to traditions that have been inherited, and that has to be worked at. Um, but when uh, it reaches a point where there is a kind of willful refusal to take seriously the good in other people, which I think is very much the issue um, in the debate about gay relationships, where it seems to me the church very frequently ends up attacking people for the best thing they've done in their lives, like make a commitment of, uh, uh, to a partnership. 
um, or when it's used to um, uh, to justify a kind of discrimination that that actually is we can see in our own tradition it's is beginning to is beginning to be undone from way back um, then I think it's bad religion yeah show me how helpful is religion to liberty <laughs> this is one of those very um, humbling almost absurd almost sort of quasi Olympic flag carrying moments sitting in St Paul's Cathedral being asked to pronounce on religion is um, is not something I anticipated um, um, Don't worry. ever, ever <laughs> in my life. So, so, okay, Chakrabarti, Chakrabarti on religion, the tin, the tin pot philosophy. Should we just do that? Let, let's let's just do it. So Chakrabarti on religion goes I'm like preaching this. Preaching on Sunday, so this might right. be helpful. There Karen. are basically three. Cho- there are three choices. This is very prescriptive. This is not very libertarian at all. There aren't fourteen choices. There aren't there aren't five point eight. There are three choices about to handle this religion stuff. Okay, I'm, I'm, I, I don't want to offend anybody. All right, I'm just you know, trying to do it succinctly. So, choice number one: pick your favourite religion, anyone you like. Pick a number, any number. Pick a religion, any religion, and and embed it into your society. Every every bit of society will be based on this religion. Your legal system, your political system, etc., etc., etc. Nothing else will be tolerated. This this will be it. This will be your way of life at the expense of any other options, choices, flavours. Extreme example, I suppose, Afghanistan under the Taliban. Um, Other examples, maybe even this country at earlier stages in its development. That was the first option. The second option is actually equal and opposite. It's a a hideous mirror. It's it's all dangerous, divisive, mumbo-jumbo, nothing good comes of it. It's prejudice and it's war and it's the Spanish Inquisition and it's etc, etc, etc. You follow, you've heard that argument. Um, if we can't ban it altogether, this religion stuff, we will chase it from the public sphere into the private sphere, into the house, up in the bedroom, under the bed with the pornography. That's how we'll handle this religion stuff. Guess what? I'm not going to favour either of those. Don't, have, you, have you noticed that I'm not being completely neutral in this? And then, of course, there is the third way, right? There was, there has to, what, what is it about three-part lists? Does that come from Christianity as well? I think it did. Anyway. <laughs> Probably. So the, thir- the third option is the one that I favour from a human rights perspective. That, um, that, that, that gives religion neither privilege nor punished status in, in a society. Let's people have their different flavours that recognises that certainly in the UK but in other parts of the world too, the struggle for democracy is partly the struggle for freedom of religion and freedom of conscience. It's part of the it's part of the story. And human beings are whether they're religious or not, we are all creatures in my view of both faith and logic, emotion and reason. And yes, religious people have killed each other and done terrible things, but they've also been responsible for great acts of kindness and charity and Mozart's Requiem and the Sistine Chapel and many, many beautiful things as well as, as, well as ugly things. So we try to create a space where we can rub along together, we can enjoy this freedom, which as I said before is faith of your choice, no faith, and crucially the right to be the heretic in a faith community.
whether it's because you're gay and and the whole community isn't ready to accept that in the, in its clerical community yet or whether you're a woman pushing the boundaries um, or whether just in some other interpretation of your scriptures or your faith you're, you're, you're pushing in a different way that, that, that heresy needs to be protected too and neither privilege nor punished status we've got, to, we've got to respect things we disagree with respect things we don't understand and, and try to, to rub along together so um, unelected bishops of the Church of England shouldn't be in the Lords? Um, I, um, well, you know, nobody's elected in the Lords. So, you know, have, have, lots, of, have lots of different... I, I'm quite a fan of, generally, of cross-benchers because they don't, you know, they're not party, they're not party political and mm. um, they often do vote against things like internment without charge or trial. So, uh-huh. um, so I'm, not, I'm, not the per- I'm not the person to, to you know, to hang all the you know, hang all, hang anybody really because I don't do that. (laughs) Okay, moving on. Lots of questions coming in. Thank you very much uh, for them. Considering, says somebody, the revelations from organisations like WikiLeaks in recent years, should we have more freedom to information held by our government? Are organisations like WikiLeaks helping to make democracy fairer or are they eroding rights to privacy? I think I'm going to come back to you. Oh God, goodness, that's a yeah. I mean, there is this is tr- this is really tricky stuff because I, you know, I it's kind of transparency and 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 privacy. We need we obviously need, but neither can be absolute. We we need both. I have no doubt that that that, that whistleblowers and and media outlets and WikiLeaks and all sorts of developments like that can be incredibly important in exposing abuses of power and holding the powerful to to account that um but even those agents of change have to have to behave responsibly too um and and um one of the things that's impressed me so far about the latest um about the snowden guardian um issue is that I don't think anyone's done a great big data dump. I think people have been working quite hard to try and sift information so as not, for example, to put lives at risk and, uh, and so on. It's, it's, it's very tricky human rights territory, as, as a lot of human rights territory is, because on the one hand, we do want to expose abuses of power, but we don't want to become abusers ourselves, and, 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 and protecting people's anonymity and, and privacy is... Is, is important. I can't, on the one hand, say that when states compromise people's privacy, that's wrong. But if we do it to each other, that, you know, that's right. This is all about um, protecting hu- human beings. And even when we break the law, which some people do feel compelled to do, occasionally, you know, breach the Official Secrets Act or an equivalent somewhere else, that doesn't mean that they give up all ethical duties. You can say I've breached my legal duty because I felt so compelled to expose wrongdoing, but you don't then leave your ethics at the door. And these human rights values, like privacy and, and so on, are, are, ethical, are an ethical framework, not, not, not just a legal one, and, and, they, and they bind all of us, I think. Is there a difference between secrecy and privacy? Yes, there is. Um, uh, privacy is a is a is a positive human protection. Secrecy suggests cover up. 
you know, suggests a guilty, the guilty secret, you know, um, and they're not the same thing. And one of the things that makes me laugh sometimes is that, you know, governments tell us nothing to hide, nothing to fear. But when their little secrets are coming out, then suddenly this is the worst treachery and you're with us or against us. So there's going to be no privacy for us and no scrutiny for them. That doesn't, that doesn't seem completely fair to me. I don't know. Peter Wikileaks. I, I think, um, actually, similar um, arguments from, would come from me in relation to uh, Wikileaks and all that, um, as, as to other forms of um, uh, restrictions on people's liberty. That is to say, um, we need a due and proper process for deciding what are the things that can be made known and what are the things that reluctantly we have to know but we want to make sure that we keep that to a minimum and we're as transparent as possible. Um, I mean, I, I, I don't want to argue about, to get into whether WikiLeaks or indeed Ed Snowden um, uh, could have done things differently than they did. But when I read Jack Straw saying that the Guardian is obsessed with its own power and considers itself to have the right to decide what endangers people's lives and what doesn't, um, what I want to say is, but there was a time, Jack Straw, when you did that. And did you have any more right or ability to know that? And just because you were elected to a government, um, we actually need due process for making things secret and making them open. And we need to have a space in which that can be argued out and the decision respected. Abdul Hamza, is it right that he was kept in this country and paid for by the taxpayer for many years because of the Human Rights Act? Oh, don't come to me on this one. It's always, it's, it's always me on the... You know, I feel like... Um, did you ever see the Godfather movies? Did you? Did you? You've seen the Godfather movies? You know, one, two, and three? You know, there's, the, there's the one when Al, Al, Al Pacino, who plays Michael Corleone, who's, who's now, you know, in the first movie, he starts out all fresh-faced and innocent, and he's a Vietnam vet, and he's in uniform, and he's been kept clean by his, by his family. You know, they're doing all the, the, the wicked stuff, but he's going to be, one day he's going to be Senator President Corleone, because it doesn't work out like that. You've seen the movies, right? It all goes, it all goes bad. He has to assume the leadership of the family business, and and he, but he still wants to take the family legit, you know. And I think it may be the third movie where he says, every time I try to go legit, they drag me back in. That's how I feel about, you know, trying to talk about happy, positive human rights vision, you know. Because Mar Martin Luther King, of course, famously didn't say, I have a nightmare, did he? <laughs> I have a dream. So there's Shami trying to remember to have a dream. And then it's Abu Qatada and oh, just these... Um, Honestly, the Home Secretary gets irritated by all of this. Imagine how I feel getting asked about these men as if they're sort of my stalking ex-boyfriends. And they're... Can we have Shami on the TV to talk about Abu Qatadra? So, um, so here's the thing. 
torture, we don't do torture. Never, 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 never. It's one of the few absolutes in the whole human rights framework. There's so many compromises. We've talked to balances, privacy, free speech, can't be absolute. Torture, never, 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 never. Why? Historically, the drafters had seen people coming out of extermination camps and, and Japanese prisoner of war camps. And maybe because, you know, we will all die one day and there's not a lot we can do about that, but we don't... But, but when you torture someone, you do something worse than even take their life. You do something to yourself, to them, to, to society. So torture, we don't do it. If we don't do it by our own hands, then it is illogical to say, but we'll put someone on a plane and send them to a place of torture. Um, and if you think about it, if you're prepared to deport someone potentially to a place of torture, what's the difference between deportation to torture and extraordinary rendition? Singing again, you understand. What's the difference? You can't, you know, you, you can't protect people from torture and try to work for a world where there will be no torture and inhuman degrading treatment if you are prepared to stick people on planes to places of torture. Here's the sad irony of this story. Theresa May, the Home Secretary, actually achieved something very positive that her predecessors had not managed to do. She, you know, we're told that she negotiated a constitutional amendment in, in the Kingdom of Jordan so that, so that people can't be tried on the basis of torture evidence. And as a result of that, the, 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 the courts started to believe that, um, that it was safe for this man to leave, and in the, end, in the end, he left. She could have come to the House of Commons and said, I have done a great thing. I did not stick this man on a plane and breach court orders and send him to torture. And what's more, people in another land will no longer be tortured or tried on the basis of torture. What a great human rights heroine I am make me the next Prime Minister. But instead, she's banging on about, you know, it took years and it's, it's wretched human rights and we should scrap the human rights out. I just don't get it. Peter? Uh, well, I think there are two just things I'll add to that. Um, one is, uh, which, which have to do with the way the question was put. Um, uh, the question mentioned the Human Rights Act. Uh, it wasn't the Human Rights Act. It wouldn't be the Human Rights Act that stopped him being deported in order to be tried with torture evidence in use. It's the convention, and it's far more important things than the Human Rights Act. And actually saying that it had something to do with an act of parliament that Labour introduced, or that it had something to do with um, Europe, a European convention, is simply wrong. And the second thing in the question that I really want to take up very strongly is at the taxpayer's expense. That's an argument that gets paraded in situations like this. It is our privilege to live in a society in which human rights are protected, and that, that has cost implications. Always, my human rights have cost implications. It is my human right not to be arbitrarily arrested and thrown into prison without due process. That's very expensive. Very expensive and very important. Not too much time left. I'm going to try and get in two more questions. Um, well, three, but I'm going to put two together because they're slightly connected. One is governments and corporations are threatening liberties massively across the globe. How do we control them? The whole capitalist system is totally undermining freedom. Can we change the system with... 
If freedom, as I believe it does, partly comes from disobedience to oppressive forces, then where can people go to show and actualize their discontent and disobedience? Goodness me. Well, we like to These make you work for your money. These are tiny little questions, aren't they? <laughs> I was hoping for what's your favorite color? <laughs> Cup of tea with the vicar. <clears throat> Not here. Do you believe that sen questions should be censored? <laughs> no. No. <laughs> no. Now, don't try and get out of these questions <laughs> by... Uh, so disobedience, disobedience is easy. You just you, you, you type liberty human rights into your favourite search <laughs> engine. No, do my my colleagues will not forgive me if I haven't made the ask at least one, two, three. So no, do do please remember to have a look later. Governments and corporations across the globe threatening rights and freedoms. Yes, yes, they are. So here's the thing: if they work together as big, powerful institutions, we have to work together too. This is a shrinking, interconnected world. That's why all this nonsense, all this kind of nationalism stuff is, is nonsense. This is why we need a, an internationalism in our human rights values. Do we need a British Bill of Rights and a French Bill of Rights? We need the universal, um, the universal human rights values. And, and there are opportunities. We stay true to those values for, you know, with, the inter with the advent of the internet, which levels the playing field. Um, so much more than, than it did for, for campaigners and for civil society and for disobedient folk to come together across the, the globe. This, this Luther King point, I, I was speaking somewhere years ago in the depths of the war on terror, giving some grim-worthy speech about ID cards and, and internment and how everything was going to hell in a handcart. It was pretty bad for a while. And a, a wonderful woman came up to me at the end of my talk, and she was very kind, but she made a good point. She said, Chami, that was so fascinating, but, but do remember that, that Martin Luther King didn't say, I have a nightmare. He said, I have a dream. And so I want to say to you that there, I, I have hope and I have optimism or I wouldn't do this job. What would be the point of getting up in the morning? So yes, there are governments and corporations, and they're powerful, and they work across national boundaries. We can be powerful and we can work across national boundaries too and we are united in those human rights values of dignity, equality and fairness and, um, and we can do amazing things together. <coughs> Peter? Uh, yes, uh, we can and must do all those things um, and um, if you don't like uh, what uh, the question was, where do you take your disobedience? Uh, well, if you don't like what the American government is doing about something, they have an embassy, they have a presence in this country, they have, uh, they had, have bases in this country. You can demonstrate, you can go there, and you can make their life difficult to show your disapproval. Um, the Atlantic doesn't have to be a barrier in that way. Um, and in a world in which uh, there's a lot of media publicity and activity, people know how to, uh, how to get their message heard. I think my proudest moment as a Brit, my, my sense of the enormous, the enormous privilege of living in this country was the, the February march against the Iraq invasion before it happened when you went along the Thames 
past Muslim women praying, past people carrying anarchist banners, past people saying all sorts of different things, some of which you agreed with, some of which you didn't, but because we didn't want this war. And, uh, and we, we, we did something which was broadcast across the world, and I think that was a really good thing to do. Just on capitalism, can I say that the problem about using that word is that it covers such a vast range of things. I personally, and I said this in my uh, brief talk, I personally think something has happened to late capitalism, which is about the way money has come to dominate things, which is a very particular case, and I think can be resisted in all sorts of ways. So I don't think it's right to say there's a choice between revolution on the one hand, total revolution, and doing nothing. There are points of resistance. We should find them, and we should act in them. Thank you, and I apologise to those of you who haven't had your questions uh, read out tonight. There have been an enormous amount of them here. Uh, but the last question, and I think this, I'm asking this because it ties so well with the theme of this forum series. Someone's uh, written, as someone committed to changing the world, beginning with myself, how can I now apply the concept of freedom to changing my life in the village community where I live. How can we take these great ideals and make them translate into my heart, my life, the way I relate, and so on? Goodness me. Well, you know, Eleanor Roosevelt, who's sort of the, the grandmother of international human rights, famously said, um, human rights begin in small places close to home, places so small and so close that you'll never find them on any map of the world. But, but that's, you know, that's where they have to be enjoyed. They have to be protected in the not just in the courtroom and the parliament chamber, but in the in the classroom and the police station and the living room and the newsroom, um, everywhere. You know, in great you know, great cathedrals like this, but, but in, as I say, the, the classroom and the, the local church, and we have to try and live by these values. They are ethical values as well as legal concepts. And, you know, my, my, my little boy's always, you know, holding me to account, you know. You call yourself the director of liberty? You know, let me speak, you know, let me finish. <laughs> And, uh, and you accused me of you accused me of doing whatever, and you know yeah, I haven't had a fair hearing, and you've just, you know I, I've, I had I've had all of all of that, and we just have to you know some of this is about you know treating other people as you'd like to be treated, not judging people lest you be judged. That's Matthew, isn't it? Anyway, look at me trying to show off to the vicar now. Do you? I think um, it was Jesus actually. Was but, it? Uh, there you go. <laughs> oh, and that's a debatable I'm, question. I am put, I am put, okay, I'll do, I'll, do, I'll do Aaron Sorkin in that case. I can, I can do that. Matt Santos in the final series of The West Wing said this wasn't designed to, 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 to make us comfortable. It was designed to keep us free. So we've got to challenge each other, be challenged ourselves, try and live by these values and, 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 and fight for vulnerable people in the village and in the country and in the world. Peter. Um, yes, I mean, uh, Shami uh, unashamedly said that uh, if we wanted to 
do anything significant, we should join liberty. Um, I just want to say, I think you should join a church and make life difficult for the other members by raising these questions. And, um, and that's what you can do. I mean, it is, we do have a choice about what kind of a village it is that we want to live in. Do we want to live in a village where nobody dares to speak their mind if it's slightly countercultural, or do we want to live in a village where people are having arguments about important questions? I, I, know, I know that I would rather be in a church in which that was happening than one where nobody dared to ask a difficult question or express an unpopular opinion. And I think it's too... I mean, the things I most regret in my life are the moments when I didn't say anything. Um, because if I say something, it may be stupid, it may be unwise, it may even be angry or in, in some other sense less than the best uh, of me. But at least then I can be corrected. Um, if I grumpily and silently accept injustice and don't say anything, then I won't be corrected, and that will be bad for me and bad for the world. Um, last time we met, uh, and we were thinking about compassion. Um, I ended by quoting um, Nelson Mandela who also said something, I think, very profound about freedom. He, he said in his autobiography, freedom is indivisible. The chains on any one of my people were the chains on all of them. And the chains on all of my people were the chains on me. And I feel that tonight we've connected or begun to connect the personal with the political um, when we're talking about freedom. And we've been helped by two people who I think I described at the beginning, uh, non-negotiable friends of, of freedom. And they're not to a penny at the moment. There's a cost to saying some of the things that have been said here tonight. Uh, and I just want on your behalf to thank both Shami and Peter for making us, I hope, now leave this place and start thinking through the importance of freedoms, of rights, and how we're going to translate them, even at the PCC in the village, how we can make freedom change the world. Thank you very much, uh, Peter and Shami. Thank you. Thank you.